0: This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, it's hard to believe that it's been just a few weeks since the terrible massacre in Las Vegas, and we find ourselves waking up to another similar tragedy, a gunman with an assault weapon fired on a small congregation of Texans, 26 dead. And again, we hear another chorus of calls for thoughts and prayers.
1: Well, we add our own thoughts and prayers But as stewards of public health, Mark, I think we are seeking more substantive action.
0: There are some 33,000 gun-related deaths per year in this country. And in the past year alone, over 300 mass shootings the crisis calls for a decisive policy action.
1: I understand that many of those nearly 600 victims who were wounded and required hospitalization did not have health insurance and their families have had to kick start campaigns to help pay for their surgeries uh, and their recovery. So we want to take this opportunity to remind people that this year's open enrollment for health coverage is underway right now. Please make sure that you and your family are covered for next year. There are
0: only a few weeks left of open enrollment. For those seeking coverage on the Federal Exchange, simply go to healthcare.gov. Here in our state of Connecticut, it's accesshealthct.com. There are specialists available online or on the phone to answer your questions and help you navigate the sites.
1: And in the meantime, we like to peer into the future and see what kind of trends will be influencing the healthcare of the 21st century. And in the case of today's guest, blockchain for healthcare, a secure way of sharing data and currency across connected networks. And
0: Dr. Samir Dumani is a cardiologist, researcher, and entrepreneur based at the Scripps Clinic in California, and is the founder of MintHealth, a global personalized electronic health record based on blockchain technology.
1: And Laurie Robertson will stop by, the managing editor of factcheck.org. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com.
0: And as always, if you have comments, find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you.
1: We'll get to our interview with Dr. Samir Damani in just a moment. But first,
0: here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's Headline News.
2: I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. Closing in on a deal. Health insurer Aetna getting closer reportedly to finalizing a deal with pharmacy chain giant CBS Health Corp for a merger of the two entities worth about $70 billion. Reuters News cites a source close to the still-secret negotiations. The deal is set to be announced in December. The president's trip to Asia sparked a testy back and forth over the role China is playing in the opioid crisis. The administration recently declaring the opioid epidemic a national emergency with drug overdoses now leading cause of accidental death in this country. Some 20,000 of those more than 50,000 deaths blamed on the proliferation of fentanyl into the illicit drug market. Drug enforcement experts have long linked the flow of fentanyl into this country from sources in China, China vehemently denying the allegations. Open enrollment underway for insurance coverage for next year under the Affordable Care Act and the uncertain policies regarding the health law coming out of Washington and the president's decision to take away those cost reduction subsidies to insurers to help keep costs down for consumers means many consumers, especially those making too much to qualify for tax breaks, are looking at much higher premiums this year. Open enrollment ends December 15th for consumers in the federal exchanges, while some states with their own marketplaces like Connecticut have extended open enrollment to December 22nd. And some teens in Arkansas have designed a device that would impact the number of children dying by heat stroke when left inside cars, which kills between 40 to 50 children a year. The ninth grade robotics students from BB Arkansas have designed a sensor they call Baby Saver 2000, a sensor that can be attached to any baby car seat, which registers the temperature inside a closed car and automatically sets off the panic button on the key fob also sets off the car's alarm systems. The enterprising teens' invention earned them a $10,000 reward. The young entrepreneurs are continuing to develop their prototype for wider testing and distribution. I'm Mariano Hare with these healthcare headlines.
0: We're speaking today with Dr. Samir Damani, founder and CEO of MenHealth, a company utilizing blockchain technology to build a portable, secure, and self-governing personal health record. Dr. Damani is also founder and chief medical and strategy officer of MD Revolution, which aims to build a technology-enabled platform for clinicians working in chronic care management. Dr. Damani earned his doctor of pharmacy at the University of Georgia and his MD at Medical College of Georgia. Dr. Damani, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you. You know, we're hearing a lot of buzz around the emergence of blockchain technology and its potential game changer. Uh, But I think for most people, it's probably still a mystery of what blockchain technology is. But we have many people who are sort of betting on this technology, Pointed to blockchain potential for creating safely encrypted Financial transactions, as well as a secure platform for storage and sharing personal health data. And I'm wondering how it works both in theory and practice, and what motivates you to be translating this into the healthcare area?
3: I think it's important to understand that 40 of the 56 million annual deaths that occur globally occur from preventable chronic conditions. And what's, what's even more important there is that modifiable risk factors, including obesity, hypertension, sedentary activities, tobacco use, and poor nutrition represent over 70% of the risk for developing and dying from these conditions. And, and patients today have taken a passive position in their health due to payer and provider kind of dominance and siloed clinical and behavioral data. And so what blockchain enables, it enables a self-sovereign patient-controlled health record that's tied to a global, unique identifier. It allows for the seamless and secure transfer of clinical and behavioral data between patient-authorized stakeholders. And so blockchain is essentially a decentralized ledger of all transactions across the peer-to-peer network. And using this technology, any participant can confirm the transactions without the need for any kind of central certifying authority. Say, I want to transact with you. This requested transaction is actually broadcast a peer-to-peer network of computers known as nodes. These nodes then validate the transactions and the user status through algorithms. So over a period of 10 minutes, for example, the Bitcoin network processes all these transactions into a block. Then these nodes then validate those transactions every 10 minutes. And there's a hash that represents the block. And, And there's a mathematical formula that has to be solved. And that's what this peer-to-peer global network, open source, is actually doing. It's actually validating that algorithm. And that verified transaction involves financial currency, can involve contracts, records, or other information. And then once it's verified, the transaction is combined with these other transactions added as a new block to an existing chain that is completely auditable, open source, and essentially immutable. So if there's a previous block that gets hacked, the blockchain would get essentially disrupted. What this allows is, you know, at least in healthcare, you would have an EHR or some sort of data repository that would be needed in order for patients to get data. But what can happen now is blockchain essentially eliminates the middlemen, allows for seamless and secured transfer of data or information. Um, and that gives patients control.
1: We have heard that the stumbling block was the interoperability between systems and overcoming the silos of having this kind of technology. And how does blockchain bypass or overcome the issue of interoperability of records?
3: No, absolutely. I mean, the data silos that exist today really preclude our ability to deliver personalized care. And, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, when Mary goes to see her primary care physician, There's data that resides in her EHR at Dr. Jones, but she may see a specialist that has another EHR. Medical imaging might reside in Dr. Jones' separate administrative or medical imaging PAC system server. Then Mary, who's a diabetic and hypertensive patient, probably has her blood pressure written on a sheet or maybe it's in an app. And so all this data is kind of spread everywhere you wouldn't even imagine that patients own this data. I mean, because they got to go through this really arduous process of getting all these red tape, administrative kind of bottlenecks to get their own data. Um, the redundancy of tests that occur. So it's a real mess. And so, what what basically blockchain would allow is for all these different, you know, health apps, wearables, implants, EHRs, imaging, all of that to be secured in the cloud, tied to a unique identifier that can then be accessed by anyone that the patient deems appropriate and can be written into the blockchain. So we're not trying to replace EHRs. In fact, I spoke with the CEO of a, of a large EHR company, and he's like, the digitization of electronic health records was very important. He had to digitize data. But to move into value-based care, we have to give ownership of the data back to the patient. And that EHRs are really line management software. Right. And what really can happen with a blockchain now is, is Mary can go to Dr. Jones and she'll have a, an application or a platform like Mental Health that would essentially tie her personal record to a cryptographic key. Then Dr. Jones would scan that cryptographic key via a actual a QR code. Dr. Jones would then have access to her behavioral information on diet, nutrition, blood pressure. And then two, three weeks later, she goes to her cardiologist, Dr. Smith, and he can access any CAT scans or echoes that might have been done at the other site. And at the same time, he scans Mary's cryptographic keys. Now Mary now has Dr. Smith's information in her cloud. And over years, you start building this personal cloud storage where medical imaging data, behavioral data, clinical data stays there. And that data can then be moved to anyone and accessed in real time. And so now you basically can then share that data with whomever you like in real time on the blockchain or through the blockchain. And so the interoperability issues really is solved. You know, EHR companies have really claimed to build these, these kind of clunky legacy systems in the name of security. But the reality is that they've benefited from having these old right. legacy systems where it makes it difficult for you to pull and push data to it. You know, the, the beauty is, is that there are visionary CEOs and that are, you know, really excited about blockchain and see themselves as partnering with physicians and patients to value-based care. But we need patients to have more access to the data. And then you can also layer token mechanisms where now payers and providers can start incentivizing healthy behaviors on behalf of the patient, where they can start getting rewarded. You
0: certainly are a visionary. Patients should own their own information, but you've taken it one step further. As I understand it, an app that patients can actually use that will allow them to have control of that—is that what Mint Health is uh, is doing right now?
3: Yeah. So Mint Health is basically taking blockchain technology, and we we've seen you know millions of dollars of savings through doing some of the simple behavior like things we talked about. But one of the big things we noticed was that by incentivizing patients, you can get even more benefit from the human interaction that we do today. And, you know, self-monitoring, self-tracking, combined it with human interaction and a clinical tool that sorts data in a way that allows us to engage patients on a very personalized level. The government's done a great job of incentivizing providers now for non-face-to-face care through these new codes like chronic care management, behavioral health codes, but they're, they're lacking the incentive for the patient. And so what Mint Health is doing is taking existing technology on the patient engagement side, but also taking technology from my co-founder side where they built a actual medical imaging platform where they're able to get medical imaging data from the cloud and render it and stream it instantaneously to an iPad or an iPhone, which has been a huge challenge just because of the size of these images. And so if we could put not just medical imaging in the cloud, but patient data in the cloud, and then form a patient engagement model that's tied together by a token called a vitamin, that could be a powerful model, not only for the storage and and, and creating a self-sovereign record for the patient, but also creating a model to drive down the cost of healthcare. And we'll be deploying that to commercial insurance companies who then would essentially use those tokens to incentivize positive patient behaviors.
1: Well, Dr. Damani, it seems that the value would be best brought to the entire public as a public utility, a unique identifier like our social security numbers in the U.S. You as an individual could amass the data because otherwise we always seem to be caught at the bridge where the patient has now changed from one plan to another. What kind of discussions or thoughts are you having with public payers or policy makers about the potential for this as a, as a public utility versus siloed somewhat into individual insurance entities?
3: The Chronic Care Management Code, was started paying doctors 20 minutes for non-face-to-face care management back in 2015, was the first code ever of its kind reimburse. It was It was actually a CMS initiative. It was not an industry-sponsored initiative. And it's a major strategy for them to say, listen, fee-for-service medicine is here to stay, but they want to start incentivizing the right kinds of services, which is why this code was so beautiful. And so what we did is we saw in a Mississippi population of 3,500 patients that we were able to do a pretty sophisticated case control matching case study and showed that we had about 3.5 million in actual reduction in inpatient hospital claims compared to the, about the 800000 that they spent during the eight-month period on the program. So we shared that with CMS and, and they really loved it. You know, we've seen an intense amount of interest for anything that is going to get patients to engage. And if you look at the recent macro legislation,
2: mm-hmm.
3: you know, which came out in 2015, it was bipartisan. You can actually see that now MIPS, which is the Merit-Based mm-hmm. Incentive Payment System, is, is a system by which anybody who's taking care of Medicare patients, you, you'll you get penalized if you don't have certain metrics and practice improvements or advancing care information or quality. And part of those metrics are engaging patients with preventative and encouraging them to have healthier behaviors. So And in fact, we've already started to engage. And as we show early success over the next 12, 18 months, mm-hmm. We definitely have in mind that this would be a platform that the governments, not only of the US, but other Mm -hmm. countries that are suffering from chronic disease uh, would want to use.
0: You know, uh, Dr. Damani, I noticed Forbes magazine had eight reasons to be skeptical of uh, blockchain technology. And because of the inherently distributed peer-to-peer nature, blockchain-based transactions can only complete when all parties update their respective ledgers. What are your thoughts about the the naysayers about the technology?
3: There's no question that this this technology is going to transform every business that requires a clearinghouse or a middleman. Just from things like identifying voters to property ownership. And there's so many things where bottlenecks exist right now because of that. Yes, there are some bottleneck issues. You're right. Mm -hmm. Right now, you know, they can only do a certain amount of transactions per second. But there are new blockchains that are emerging right now, like EOS which actually is claiming to be able to do 100,000 transactions per second. So there's definitely, there's different ways, there's concepts in terms of how you actually verify transactions. And there are very innovative models coming out to, to help verify the transactions at a much more rapid pace. I think right now, Ether's at something like 20 or 30 transactions or somewhere in that second. But you're going to see that scale by, you know, in, in an exponential fashion. We will be doing a token offering for mental Health, and so we've got a pretty strong crypto base. We've built out our token mechanisms and are working on the app currently.
1: Well, I like uh, something that I read where you call it a quiet revolution in healthcare being led not just by the big institutions, but by people themselves, certainly with their smartphones and their wearables. It's been just astonishing watching the rise of the use of Fitbit. So it sort of gives us a tremendous amount of data that's kind of all dressed up and ready to go someplace. But I'm really curious, uh, are you also laying out a research agenda for really trying to identify what does work best and with whom in this patient engagement space? Can we look forward to big contributions to the state of knowledge around what we can do to help patients?
3: So. Part of my medical degree, I got a doctorate in pharmacy. And then after doing cardiology, I actually spent almost four years doing NIH research, ran multi-million dollar grants. So I am very much, I got into the MD revolution business around patient engagement with the idea that bringing data together in one place would allow machine learning to really reach the promise that we've been kind of pushing for so long, but we haven't because the data has been so scattered and, and siloed. And I think The reality in this situation where you have this personal cloud storage that's protected by the blockchain but has medical imaging, has the uh, clinical and behavioral information and also the EHR information in one place that the patient can share. Now, you have a way that not only are you enabling a central repository, but you're allowing patients to then decide. And we have a very unique mechanism where we're going to allow patients to vote on the way they can use the data. So if pharma wants to know all the diabetics who are on a certain drug and what their response has been, patients can now volunteer to share that data using the mental health application. So research and academic institutions, genetic companies would be very interested because one of the problems with data is that it's broad and very shallow. But what we really need is deep data. And broad data, and you can no longer, in the in the spirit or name of security, say we can't give you your data. You know, and that's the beauty of the blockchain. Atmosphere is it's, it's immutable and it's open source, so you can you can see everyone that's accessed anything ever. So, so the answer to that is absolutely. The ability to gather the data allows for machine learning to really reach its full potential.
1: We've been speaking today with Dr. Samir Damani, practicing cardiologist at Scripps Clinic and Scripps Research Institute and founder and CEO of Mint Health, a company that utilizes blockchain technology to build a portable, secure, and self-governed personal health record. You can learn more about his work by going to minthealth.io. Dr. Damani, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare
0: Conversations on healthcare. We want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week?
4: Senator Rand Paul claimed that the National Institutes of Health provided $2 million for a study on whether, quote, Kids Don't Like Food That Has Been Sneezed On. That misrepresents the research. The $2 million went to a six-year project composed of multiple studies on children's reasoning about food. One study used a video of an actor sneezing on food as a means of understanding if young children can pick up on subtle cues about contamination. Paul also ignored the ultimate aim of the NIH research to contribute to developing ways to nudge kids to make safer and more healthy food choices by understanding why they make certain choices to begin with. The senator made the claim while advocating legislation he introduced to change the federal grant funding process. But the NIH didn't spend the money to figure out if people don't like food that has been sneezed on. Among the studies in the overall project was one to understand whether kids of various ages can pick up on subtle cues about contamination. The study didn't find that people are less likely to choose food that has been sneezed on. As Paul said, that might be the case for adults, but the picture is more complicated with children. The kids were shown a video that led them to believe that a blue bowl would contain clean applesauce and a red bowl would contain sneezed on or contaminated applesauce. The researchers found that 57% of the 3- to 8-year-olds ate from both bowls, and 28% only ate from the clean bowls. 3- to 4-year-olds also ate significantly more contaminated food and rated it tastier. The researchers concluded that subtle cues can effectively impact children's choice, consumption, and evaluation of otherwise identical foods, but that influence differs by age future research is needed, they said, quote, to understand the scope of context that might either decrease or heighten children's sensitivity to contamination. And that's my Fact Check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org.
1: FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare.
0: Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Soaring prescription drug prices have been taking a toll on American health consumers. But until now, most didn't understand that they might actually have some say in what their prescription drugs cost them. Many Americans have resorted to purchasing prescriptions online online often illegally or overseas. While cheaper, these solutions come with their own risk. So an enterprising pair of brothers have created their own solution. Matthew and Jeffrey Chaikin founded Blink Health, a free online destination that links patients with prescription sources that can be up to 90% cheaper than what's found on the traditional market. The way it works is you go to BlinkHealth.com, you look up the name of your medication, the price you see there is the price you get at over 60,000 pharmacies nationwide. If that price is less than what you normally pay for your prescription, you pay for it online, we provide you with what we call a digital Blink Pharmacy Card, you show that card to the pharmacist and their, your medication rings up as $0. Co-founder Jeffrey Chaikin to CBS News recently, they negotiated prices directly with drug manufacturers. We actually have contracts with every single pharmacy in the United States. What's important for consumers is that when they go to blank, there's one price that they're gonna see they'll get that price no matter which pharmacy they go to. The Chaikin brothers say customers can purchase the drugs online, but still pick them up at their trusted local pharmacy. Since Blink launched last year, users have saved millions of dollars on prescriptions, and a majority of those prescriptions are filled for $10 or less. Blink, an online site for purchasing prescription drugs, offering consumers an option to safely fill prescriptions at a far more competitive price. Now that's a bright idea.
1: This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm
2: Mark Maselli.
1: Peace and health.
2: Conversations on Healthcare, broadcast from WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.